cast a vote that will make you proud. Cast a vote from your heart. And vote for the person you think will make the best president of the United States. Well, so much for that strategy. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for you on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing, Planet, Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. And all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. We got a lot to get to, uh, and Desi Doyen, maybe even more to get to, uh, as I was doing the intro there. Yeah. Breaking news, uh, coming from the New York Times, that a federal judge has called Attorney General William Barr's account of the Robert Mueller special counsel report, quote, misleading. Ooh. And has offered a review of the censored portions of that document. Really? Yeah. Okie dokie so, then. Uh, beyond that, I can't tell you much more as literally it that just came in, popped in on my iPhone as I was introducing the show. Because we don't have time. Time is meaningless. Everything happens all at once now. It, apparently it does. I can't tell you. I have uh, had to change the show around today about three or four times, and I'm not going to change it for that report, <laughs> but we'll find out uh, in our next thrilling broadcast, perhaps. In any way, in the meantime... Very sad news today for Elizabeth Warren supporters. You heard her there at the top of the show. The Massachusetts senator, uh, once seen as a front runner for the Democratic nomination, really just a few months ago, dropped out of the race entirely on Thursday morning after a very disappointing Super Tuesday, leaving just two white men in their 70s. Running for the White House. That is, if you don't count Hawaii Congress member Tulsi Gabbard. And it seems that most voters do not. So other than that, it's left to uh, Biden and uh, Bernie at this point. From the most diverse field of candidates to the least diverse and older white male candidates. Yeah, probably the least diverse field since forever. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, we will be joined in a bit for some thoughts on uh, Warren's candidacy and where she went wrong and where she goes from here. 
Uh, we'll be speaking with journalist Jody Jacobson shortly. But as grim as that news is, as has been a lot of news this week, uh, particularly with voting systems melting down on Tuesday and voters uh, prevented from voting uh, and, and forced to stand online obscenely and shamefully for one, two, four, six, seven hours in major jurisdictions on Super Tuesday in both California and Texas, most notably. Uh, let me start with a couple of good and or good-ish news items, at least today, to uh, buoy your spirits. You're welcome. This from AP with early voting already underway. Election officials in a Georgia county have voted to switch from the state's new voting machines to hand marked paper ballots amid concerns about ballot secrecy. Oh, that's good. Remember, we spoke with uh, Marilyn Marks. Marilyn Marks just a few days ago about the lawsuit that she filed in Georgia concerning the 100% unverifiable touchscreen systems that are now being forced across the entire state of Georgia, and they have these great big uh, screens that everyone can see from 30 or 40 feet across the room. She calls them BMD billboards, so they can see how, you know, everybody voted on them. Well, one county, at least, took her uh, her lawsuit uh, and her concerns about ballot secrecy to heart. The Athens-Clark County Board of Elections voted three to two to have voters mark their selections by hand on paper ballots that will be tallied by a scanner for the pri presidential primary election, according to the board chair. Uh, in a statement sent by text message to the AP, the board found it, quote, impracticable to use the new electronic voting system to meet the state and federal legal requirements that it protect absolute ballot secrecy while allowing sufficient monitoring of the ballot marking devices in use, according to the board chair, Jesse Evans, state law allows county election officials to opt for hand-marked paper ballots uh, when using electronic voting machines becomes, quote, impossible or impracticable. And that's what the uh, board in the Athens-Clark County have, have now decided. The primary is the first time Georgia's new voting machines and election management system are being used statewide as it was forced on them by their new Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, giving all Brads a bad name. Uh, early voting already began for the contest on uh, Mon uh, Well, early voting began on Monday for the contest that is on March 24. That's when the primary is in Georgia. And if you uh, were concerned about the meltdowns you saw across L.A. County on Tuesday, on Super Tuesday, keep your eyes towards the peach state before March 24, where they're using these new systems uh, that did not go well when they were tested in municipal elections last November. And now they're going to be used statewide everywhere, apparently, except for Athens Clark as of now. Georgia lawmakers last year passed a law providing for a new voting system and Raffensperger awarded a contract to Dominion Voting Systems and their Dominion Im ImageCast touchscreen ballot marking device. They are connected to printers that produce a paper ballot that voters then feed into a scanner that reads and tallies the votes. But those ballots that are printed out are not marked by the voters. They are marked by the computer printer after the voter selects their uh, uh, their candidates on the 
billboard BMD touchscreens. Election integrity activists, says AP, have said the machine's large, bright, vertical touchscreens and large font allow other people in the room to see a voter selection in violation of ballot secrecy provisions in state law. Officials with the Secretary of State's office, which oversees elections, have acknowledged that there are legitimate privacy concerns with these new machines, but they're trying to defend them anyway by saying, well, you could just move the machines around. You can, for example, they they uh, gave these uh, suggested precinct layout diagrams to uh, county elections officials saying that, well, don't have all the machines point towards the center of the room where everyone can see them. Instead, turn them around so they face the wall. Well, there's two problems with that. As Marilyn Marks told us, she's the plaintiff in uh, in the case that was filed against these systems in Sumter County, Georgia, because they had a special election on Tuesday, this past Tuesday. So she filed an emergency injunction to try to get to hand uh, hand marked paper ballots. She says that if you face those machines towards the wall, well, two problems. One, they can still be seen by the voter who is voting next to you because they are so big and so huge. And as people you know, move behind someone along the wall to get to their own machine, they can see how everyone else voted. If you're voting next to your abusive husband, for example, and uh, he doesn't want you to vote a certain way, he can see how you voted on that touchscreen very easily. Uh, So that's a problem. And then the other problem is the little voting uh, booths, I don't know what we call them, the cubicles that they put the machines in, if they are turned back to face the wall, then uh, election officials can observe the machines. And they can't uh, observe what's going on with those giant machines, too, by the way, which Marilyn said they're so big they won't be able to use enough machines. So they'll actually have fewer machines, which will make longer lines. Oh, yeah, there's that, too. Yeah. Uh, But in this case, the officials would not be able to see if somebody, you know, reaches behind the computer to put in a jump drive or any of the other ways you can uh, screw with these machines introduce malware, whatever. So they got some problems, and at least one of the... I'm not sure how many counties there are in Georgia, but we finally found one that was willing to vote for the right thing. One county election board uh, willing to do the right thing. We'll see if others uh, do so. By the way, the uh, judge in the case that uh, Maryland filed in, uh, in Sumter County on Monday denied the Coalition for Good Governances, uh, that's her group, uh, denied the coalition's emergency motion that sought to switch to handmarked paper ballots, writing that the group had not proven that it will be, quote, impossible or impracticable for the election officials to arrange the voting machines, quote, in a manner that protects the secrecy of the ballot while allowing sufficient monitoring. Uh, so anyway, that is uh, that suffices for some good ish news today. But we've got still more good ish news. Montana's popular Democratic governor, Steve Bullock, according to The New York Times, is poised to reverse himself and run for the U.S. Senate. That, according to three Democratic officials who spoke on condition of anonymity to The New York Times, that decision would hand the Democratic Party a coveted recruit who could help reclaim a majority in the U.S. Senate this November. After months of insisting that he would not challenge Senator Steve Daines, 
the Republican incumbent. Uh, Bullock, who ran for the Democratic presidential nomination last year, has told Democrats in the last week that he is now inclined to run in what would immediately become one of the mo- one of the marquee Senate races of 2020. Bullock only has a few days left to finalize his decision. The filing deadline to run in Montana is Monday. Do it, Bullock. We'll find out soon. (laughs) Senate Democrats uh, have high hopes to defeat incumbent Republicans in a number of states, including Arizona, Colorado, Maine, and North Carolina, four states, uh, where on Tuesday, by the way, the uh, D.C. Democrats, their preferred candidate, captured the nomination. That would be the uh, pretty conservative white guy with money. Uh, but with little governing experience, a guy by the name of Cal Cunningham in North Carolina, uh, he won in the primary uh, race for the U.S. Senate nomination over the progressive African-American state senator Erica E. Smith, who we had on this show a month or two back. And uh, she, frankly, was just fierce. So I am sorry that the D.C. establishment chose Cunningham over her, and I hope to God that he can beat the very vulnerable incumbent Republican Tom Tillis in North Carolina in one of the nation's most closely divided uh, states. So um, those are the four, Arizona, Colorado, Maine, and North Carolina, those are the four that Democrat, uh, Senate Democrats hope to, uh, hope to win in November, but... With Republicans holding a 53-seat majority and currently favored to defeat Senator Doug Jones of Alabama, at least according to the polls, it has not been clear which state could offer Democrats a fifth seat. That's the one that they would need to win a clear majority in the U.S. Senate. And, by the way, they would have to win them all. But if Bullock gets in the race, that would be a very good uh, possibility for seat number five. Now, Bullock, who he's more conservative uh, than me anyway on some issues, but he's actually really good in others, like taking on corporate money in politics. He has been a fierce advocate to get uh, dark money out of politics for years, even before he became governor, when he was the attorney general, and he fought back against uh, the, the Koch brothers and the Citizens United decision. He has repeatedly insisted, uh, uh, well, even I was going to say until today, but even still today, that he would not run for the Senate. He said that during uh, his presidential run. He said it after his presidential run. But uh, but if he does decide to get in, that could be a game changer for the possibility of Democrats retaking the Senate this November, since uh, even though Montana is seen as a very red state where Trump won, by the way, in 2016 by 20 points in Montana. On that very same statewide ballot in 2016, the Democratic Bullock won his second term as governor by about six points, as I recall. So, you know, uh, this is within striking. distance. uh, Yeah, it certainly seems like it could be. Now, Trump, according to The New York Times, is believed likely to carry Montana again this year in 2020, just as he did in 2016. But they say Bullock could uh, prove a formidable contender in the Senate race. And uh, that would be particularly the case if Democrats enjoy the same sort of enthusiasm this November that helped propel Montana's other senator, 
Democrat John Tester to his reelection in 2018. So don't give up, you know, Montana as a, as a so-called red state. They do elect Democrats statewide to both the Senate and the governorship, and they have done so in 2018, and they did so in 2016, and it can be done again in 2020. We'll see if uh, Bullock decides to get in or not. If so, by the way, he's not the only Democrat uh, who's interested in getting in. There's a handful of candidates already running, including the mayor of Helena, and an economic development executive who has raised over $600,000 already for her bid. If Bullock does get in, look to that race to be the most expensive in state history and uh, perhaps uh, the most expensive on the ballot in November. Yeah, it's a really important race if he does get in. It's an important race no matter what, because remember, the U.S. Senate control is what stands in the way of anything useful for Americans getting passed. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, is going to bury any Democratic president's agenda. And remember, judges and the Supreme Court are up for grabs as well. Uh, yeah, they are. And that's why, uh, you know, when it comes to the uh, presidential nomination and uh, losing someone like Elizabeth Warren, who I think could have excited a lot of people, it's kind of sad. And uh, anyway, we'll we'll save that for uh, when Jody's here. Yes, because I've got some other uh, you'll decide if this is good news or not with uh, some news out of Los Angeles today, which might be good-ish news on the heels of the disastrous rollout that we have been uh, telling you about long before, during, and since Super Tuesday of uh, L.A. County's $300 million, 100% unverifiable touchscreen computer ballot marking devices, or BMDs, that we had long warned about and were used uh, countywide for the first time in the recent Super Tuesday elections after 10 years of development and after more than 40 violations of California voting system standards, which resulted in California Secretary of State Alex uh, Padilla nonetheless certifying them in late January for the March election, certified them anyway, despite the warnings, despite the failures. And as you know, Super Tuesday was a disaster out here in L.A. County with these systems melting down the the machines, the BMDs themselves, as well as the electronic poll book check-ins. I don't have time to revisit all of those disasters, but I got a few bits of news here of note on this today. Let me start with Washington Post's coverage here. A new voting system, they write, in L.A. County faced its big uh, first big test on Super Tuesday, the culmination of a decade of work on what was envisioned as a model for the nation. But technical glitches. Hmm. Yeah, I know. They're always glitches. It's always Never gl- failures. Failures. Technical failures caused hours-long lines across the county, the largest in the country with more than 5 million registered voters and harsh criticism from candidates, voters, and political parties. About one-fifth of the county's touchscreen voting machines did not work properly and had to be replaced. One-fifth of them. According to the uh, county spokesman, Michael Sanchez, uh, late on Tuesday, for reasons he said he could not specify at the time. He also said that network problems in multiple locations interfered with the electronic poll books used to verify voter eligibility, forcing some voters to have to cast a provisional ballot, which we have also talked about in recent days and warned about in the run up to the election. Mark Gonzalez, chair of the county's Democratic Party, said, quote, we believed in the technology and we believed it would work because that's what we were told. 
He uh, said that's not what happened. Machines completely went out. Voting centers completely shut down. Well, that's not what I told them. That's not what I told the uh, county Democratic Party or anyone else in this county. And I've been doing so quite loudly for years. Ultimately, uh, though it took many years, several cybersecurity and voting systems experts eventually, uh, you know, other than me, eventually uh, joined in and uh, told these officials the same thing, including the secretary of state. But Democrats here in Los Angeles just did not want to hear it. Janice Hahn a member of the county's nonpartisan board of supervisors said she plans to press for the county registrar's office to investigate the failures and to explain within 30 days how they can be remedied before November's general election. I have an idea how they could be remedied. You could throw them all into the Pacific Ocean. Well, no, we no, don't want to do that. No, that would be pollution. Well, no, actually, it would make those nice new uh, coral, uh, fake coral reefs. No, it wouldn't. Artificial? No. no. Okay. All right, don't throw them in the ocean. Responsibly recycle them, please. Yes, there you go, and replace them with hand-marked paper ballots. Anyway, she said that uh, the reason we changed to this system was to create more access for people and more flexibility, so I want to make sure that the problems people experienced didn't cause just the opposite of what we were attempting to do. It did, Janice. It did. Dean Logan, the L.A. County Registrar of Voters, who led the development of the system, did not respond to calls seeking comment Wednesday from The Washington Post. So I feel better. <laughs> uh, in addition to not answering my questions for some time now, Dean Logan, the guy who's this was his brainchild, he won't even answer The Washington Post at this point. On Tuesday, he told the L.A. Times that this was a challenging day for a lot of voters in L.A. County, and I certainly apologize for that. But here's the part I wanted to share. Uh, recall that I mentioned over the weekend at, uh, at a voting center I went to out here in Hollywood, at the Hollywood Bowl, I was told by an election worker that he could not answer simple questions that I had for him, like, hey, how's the voting been going? Has it been crowded here? Have the machines been working? The first one that I saw, the first voter I saw using uh, one of them, the machine jammed, uh, the paper ballot printout thing uh, jammed in the printer. Uh, you know, has there been any trouble with the Internet connection that's required for the electronic poll books needed to allow folks to vote on these new touchscreens? Because that very site at the Hollywood Bowl had been down most of the entire day before because they were having problems getting the uh, Internet connection to work. Uh, so w w w at some point, this poll worker asked, well, are you with the media? I said, yes. And he then immediately clammed up and he said he was told by the county that he could not talk to the media at all, that if any media came, he was not allowed to talk to them. He had to give them a phone number to call to call the uh, county's uh, media uh, person, media rep. Well, I reported on that uh, on Twitter that day, noting that it was the first time in 20 years that that has ever happened. And asking uh, L.A. County Registrar Recorder County Clerk Dean Logan what was up with the secrecy and the media lockdown of poll workers. That tweet ended up going viral a little bit. And uh, Dean Logan, I think it was on Monday, uh, he tweeted that it was, quote, uh, social media fiction and that he would never, quote, muzzle election workers. So that means that uh, either he was calling me a liar or maybe the election worker a liar, but he you know, said he would never muzzle election workers. So it must be, I must have been lying about that. 
Now, that lie turned out to be his lie, not mine, and I was able to prove it because I had photos of the election worker in this case pulling out the paper with the with the media contact phone number on it, etc. So, you know, I, I've meant, I think I mentioned this earlier in the week, Des. I've always thought Dean was a nice guy. I didn't uh, agree with him on a number of things, but I thought he was a nice guy during the many years I've worked with him in various ways. And even after he stopped answering my questions or coming on this program, I just disagreed with his terrible idea for an unverifiable and vulnerable voting system. But now it is clear that Dean Logan is a liar and he is willing to slime folks like me if he feels it is necessary. And uh, Washington Post here once again proves that I was correct. Along with the photos I posted on on, uh, on Twitter, Washington Post proves the case as well. They write, on Tuesday, Gonzalez, the county Democratic chair, said he saw elderly voters and those with disabilities waiting in line for hours despite the county's ambitions for a system that would work best uh, for the most vulnerable who were left standing in line for three hours. At the University of California at L.A.'s Ackerman Student Center, students and staff reported waiting in line for up to two hours. Some simply left, saying they could not miss work or class. A county poll worker there who spoke on the condition of anonymity because he had been instructed not to talk to the press said the Internet connection on campus was too slow to support the poll books. So the county poll worker was reported right here in the Washington Post that he had been instructed not to talk to the press. Exactly the same thing that I reported that Dean Logan called me a liar for reporting. Well, I can't wait to see Dean Logan call the Washington Post a liar. Call them. Yeah, so it's social media fix. You know, he was dying to call it fake news. You could tell. That's what he wanted. He called it social media fiction. Uh, but now, hey, Dean. Fake news over at the Washington Post. Are you going to come out and say anything about it? No, apparently not, because uh, he's not talking even to the Washington Post for some reason. He's somewhere he's hiding in a cave, and I can hardly blame him. Uh, anyway, um, supposedly, by the way, he, he's, a, he's a Democrat, that uh, Dean Logan. But, you know, he likes uh, being sort of Trump-ish, Trump, Trump-esque, I guess in uh, sliming people on the Twitters. Now, uh, so I wanted to mention that point. And now, another point before I get to the uh, some actual news here. The VSAP, it's called Voting Solutions for All People. That's the L.A. County thing, uh, the system. Uh, the VSAP.LAVote.net site was down entirely for the past 24 hours or so with a message on the website, Connection Failed even while the rest of the website at lavote.net was working just fine. Um, not a good sign and thought, well, does that mean this is the end of the VSAP system? Well, today the site is back up. So, um, But nonetheless, the experiment might be coming to an end, sort of. NBC News investigative reporter Cynthia McFadden was the first to report this morning breaking California Secretary of State Alex Padilla calls on L.A. County to send every registered voter a ballot 29 days in advance by mail, 29 days in advance of the November 3 general election. She says he slams L.A. County voting, the vote centers that were understaffed and poorly set up, the many voting machines and check-in machines that were not working. 
So it looks like we're going to have all vote-by-mail ballots uh, elections here in Los Angeles. I know a lot of folks in Oregon are probably delighted to hear that. I am not so delighted. Hand-marked paper ballots at the polling place is the best way to go for a whole bunch of reasons. But given the options now, uh, if they send a ballot to everyone in L.A., five and a half million registered voters, uh, as opposed to forcing us to use these crappy, failing, unverifiable touchscreens, well, I guess that's a good thing. Uh, someone on Twitter, uh, Machi, 3 Machio, uh, replied to McFadden by saying, a guy in charge of voting proposes fixing voting system that he created. True, sort of. Actually, Dean Logan created it down here in L.A. Alex Padilla just gave the thumbs up despite all of the uh, violations of California voting system standards, despite all of the warnings about it. And yes, uh, he actually uh, Padilla did go to bat for this system, helping to raise the 300 million taxpayer dollars to pay for this uh, uh, piece of crap. All right, we got to get out. Uh, this story, by the way, that was Cynthia McFadden of NBC. It has since been confirmed by Libby Denkman over at the LAist, who includes uh, a statement from Padilla in her report. I will link to that when I post today's show at bradblog.com. More election news, even creepier, out of Texas, is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. The eyes of Texas are upon you. Yes, they are. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So as I noted when we uh, covered Super Tuesday results on our previous show, and as I always do when I cover results, it takes some time before problems in the reported results actually reveal themselves. And I'm getting a bunch of reports from a bunch of different places that I'm trying to look into about numbers that don't add up, that are impossible. I hope to have more on this in, in upcoming shows and as I can learn more. But this one broke today, and I want to get it on your radar right away before we're joined by Jody Jacobson uh, to discuss Elizabeth Warren dropping out of the uh, race uh, in a moment here. This from the Houston Chronicle. Democratic state rep Harold Dutton said Thursday he has hired a private investigator to look into the candidacy of Natasha Ruiz, an opponent who forced him into a runoff despite never establishing a presence in the race. This was the primary held on Tuesday in Texas in Harris County, where some of those voters waited online for as long as seven hours to try to vote at these voting centers that failed. Uh, but Dutton, who is a Houston Democrat, is one of the longest serving members of the Texas House. He said he may contest the result of the election, depending on what the investigation into this Natasha Ruiz reveals. None of Ruiz's three opponents uh, in the race, that would be Dutton and a uh, Houston councilman named Jerry Davis and uh, an executive named Richard Bonton. None of them have ever seen Ruiz or found any evidence that she actually had a campaign at all. 
The news comes after Dutton finished first place on Tuesday in the four-candidate primary, reportedly, uh, for his House district, which covers parts of uh, Houston and Harris County. Dutton uh, got 45 percent of the vote. That was about 20 points ahead of second-place finisher Davis. Ruiz finished third uh, with 20.5%, and Botton finished last with 9%. Now, Dutton and Davis will now have a runoff in a May, on May 26 because no candidate received a majority of the votes. Dutton got the most with 45 and remember, he's a longtime member of the House, but he fell just short of the 50 uh, percent that he would need to avoid a runoff. Bonton, who came in last on Tuesday uh, behind the mysterious Ruiz uh, in third place, reportedly, uh, he had drawn back in 2018. He drew 35 percent of the vote as uh, uh, Dutton's sole challenger that year. He is dismayed about this Ruiz and her candidacy. He says he's also investigating the situation. He says it seems odd to me that somebody that's never been on the campaign trail all of a sudden mysteriously pops up. Not a yard sign, not a speech, not an event, not a forum, nothing, he said. A campaign of nothingness has resulted in 21%. Well, 21%, according to the 100% unverifiable direct recording electronic voting systems that they still force voters to use in Harris County. Mind you, Dutton uh, has never been forced into a runoff <clears throat> since winning the seat in 1984. He's drawn a total of five Democratic and two Republican challengers in his entire career. And his 30 point win in 2018 over Bonton, that was his narrowest victory since 1986. So uh, right now, the guy uh, Davis, who came in second place, he says he's not interested in talking about Ruiz. Uh, he's got a, a campaign to think about for some reason. He's not interested at all. But now uh, Dutton says, you know, who is this Ruiz and should she have even been on the on the uh, ballot at all? Very mysterious. And did she actually receive 21 percent? We will keep our eyes on that story yeah. as much as we can, given that you can't see how anyone voted on these voting systems. Very strange. Uh, very strange. Very interesting. Just one of many of these uh, stories that are popping up since Super Tuesday. We'll keep our eye on them. But for now, quick break. And we are back with Jody Jacobson to discuss Elizabeth Warren. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Elizabeth Warren, who electrified progressives with her 
plan for everything and strong message of economic populism, as AP reports this afternoon, dropped out of the Democratic presidential race on Thursday, days after the one-time frontrunner failed to win a single Super Tuesday state, not even her own. Warren's campaign began with enormous promise. Last summer, she drew tens of thousands of supporters to Manhattan's Washington Square Park, a scene that was repeated in places like Washington State and Minnesota. She had a compelling message calling for structural change to the American political system to reorder the nation's economy in the name of fairness. There's an idea. She had a signature populist proposal for a 2% wealth tax she wanted to impose on households worth more than $50 million that prompted chants of two cents, two cents at rallies across the country. That policy, explained at a CNN town hall last April, went something like this. I started in several months ago talking about a wealth tax, an ultra-millionaire's tax. It's two cents on every dollar of the great fortunes above $50 million. If we put that two-cent wealth tax in place on the 75,000 largest fortunes in this country, two cents, we can do universal childcare for every baby zero to five, universal pre-K, universal college, and knock back the student loan debt burden for 95% of our students and still have nearly a trillion dollars left over. Sounds great to me, but apparently not to enough voters in the Democratic primary, or I don't know, maybe they didn't hear it, or maybe they did, but they didn't like it for some unknown reason. For much of the past year, her campaign had all the uh, markers of success. She had big poll numbers, impressive fundraising, and a sprawling political infrastructure featuring staff on uh, staffers on the ground across the country. But once voting began in February, she never found a reliable base of supporters as Democrats coalesced around Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, her progressive rival, and former Vice President Joe Biden, who established himself As the leading centrist in the race, Warren was unable to consolidate the support of the Democratic Party's most progressive wing against Bernie Sanders, even as both supported universal government sponsored health care under a Medicare for all program, tuition free public college and aggressive climate change fighting measures as part of the Green New Deal while foregoing, both of them, big fundraisers in favor of small donations fueled by the Internet. She also called for systemic change in breaking up big tech companies and other corrupt monopolistic institutions and getting money out of politics, especially corporate money, altogether. Outside her Cambridge, Massachusetts home on Thursday, Warren said she was not going to endorse anyone right away. She said, I need some space, I have a little time right now. Her voice cracked when she talked about meeting so many little girls while campaigning around the country for the past year and knowing that they are, quote, going to have to wait for four more years at least to see a woman in the White House. Warren's exit leaves the Democratic field with just one female candidate. That would be Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, who has collected just one delegate toward the nomination. With two, uh, just two, white men in their 70s left to battle it out for the nomination, it's a frustrating twist for a party that once boasted the most diverse presidential field in history 
and harness the votes of en- uh, votes and energy of women to retake control of the House, primarily with female candidates, just uh, a year or so ago in 2018. Despite a disappointing finish, Warren uh, has does have quite a bit of leverage at the moment as she offers the potential of a coveted endorsement to either Sanders or Biden, who are effectively the last candidates in the Democratic contest. Joining us now to talk about this, what it means, why Elizabeth Warren got out, why she why she never got the traction once voting began, is Jody Jacobson. She's an independent writer, editor, and consultant who until recently served as editor-in-chief of Rewire.News. She covered uh, reproductive and sexual health, rights and justice, and the intersections of race, environmental immigration, and economic justice which is a very big intersection. Be careful when crossing. Previously, (laughs) she helped shape U.S. and U.N. policies on a number of similar uh, issues, serving for 13 years as founder and executive director of the Center for Health and Gender Equality. I'm sorry, gender equity, otherwise known as change. Jody Jacobson, welcome back to the broadcast. Thank you for having me once again. And based on your Twitter feed, uh, is it fair to say you were a uh, Elizabeth Warren superfan? Yes. Okay. That is fair to say. All right. I have long been a um, fan, if we put it that way, of Elizabeth Lawrence because she's just been such an incredible legislator and leader. So, uh, top line here, I guess. Uh, I, well, big question. What went right for her and what went so terribly wrong with her candidacy? Well, I think there are a lot of factors, internal and external, mm-hmm. that... Um, that didn't necessarily go wrong, but, you know, every campaign has its weaknesses and its strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with respect to Warren, in there were a few external factors that made her path extremely difficult. Um, one was the drumbeat that began last summer, in fact, probably even earlier than that, from uh, folks who represent Wall Street, mm-hmm. people like Steve Ratner on MSNBC, who constantly called her radical mm-hmm. or far left, and so painted a picture of her and and created a narrative of her in the uh, in the public media that gave people you know the wrong impression of who she is, mm. and there wasn't really a campaign response to that, which I think was one of the campaign weaknesses. Mm. I don't think they realized quite early enough how critical it would be to have rapid response and strategic media to combat those things and also to have really strong surrogates out there um, to counteract those things. So I think the, the campaign was about people because Elizabeth Warren is about people. And that's why you saw the selfie lines, the mm. pinky promises, the interactions with people, the listening to their stories until literally we hours of the morning after long days on the trail she was about people, and so I think the campaign somewhat discounted the sort of you know bigger atmospherics that go around uh, around any campaign, mm. which are harder to control, and and but can easily spin out of control, right? Mm-hmm. And then I think you also you know we can't forget this is a fear election. People are fearful. They want to. Um, they they very much want to defeat Donald Trump, which, you know, to me is about defeating the GOP and the far right, not just Donald Trump. 
and they don't seem, generally speaking, to have a lot of room for thinking about, you know, who might be best to carry forward, because mm. they're fearful. And people know Joe Biden. They, you know, the black community knows Joe Biden. Um, it's the devil that you know rather than the devil, well, in this case, the devil that you know rather than the devil that is in the White House. <laughs> and um, so I think there's just a lot of mitigating factors here that have nothing to do with Elizabeth Warren, because in poll after poll after poll, you saw that everybody liked her. Mm -hmm. She was most people's favorite candidate or second choice. But people were afraid and are afraid of taking a chance on what they perceive as electability. And that is uh, a point that uh, I saw on, again, on your Twitter feed uh, that, that cited this uh, op-ed or this editorial from uh, Michelle Cottle uh, from the New York Times editorial board, uh, who notes that, and I guess this comes down to the, the, the fear factor. Uh, she writes, a study show that uh, whatever their particular pros and cons, Women candidates are regarded as inherently less electable. You see this in polls where a high percentage of respondents claim that they are ready to elect a female president, but far fewer believe that their neighbors are. She cites a poll from last summer uh, which found that uh, gender appeared to be uh, a bigger issue than age, race, ideology, or sexual orientation. When voters were asked whom they'd pick if the primaries were held today, uh, Joe Biden came out ahead, but when asked whom they would make president with the wave of a magic wand without the candidate needing to win an election, voters went with Elizabeth Warren and women were more likely than men to cite gender as a concern. Um, does that feel uh, does that feel right to you that women are saying, uh, yeah, if it was up to me, I'd have Elizabeth Warren, but I'm afraid that that won't go over well. So I'll pick Joe Biden. Right. So I think, yes, um, I think that is right. So, you know, if we look back to Obama's first term and his first election, we know that, um, as is often said, that, you know, black voters particularly, but voters of color are strategic voters. They are better at guessing what white people will do than white people. Okay. <laughs> and so... Um, well, and may, so, you know, maybe they thought uh, that uh, Hillary Clinton was the best option for that in 2016. That didn't turn out to be a great option, and I'm concerned that African Americans are using that same strategic thinking to put uh, Joe Biden up this year. But I didn't mean to cut you off. Please continue. No, no. No, no. But what I guess I'm saying is that, you know, after... Uh, Obama won Iowa, uh -huh. you know, sort of the floodgates opened for him in terms of people saying, okay, if he can win in Iowa, then he can win elsewhere, mm -hmm. and we're going to vote for him. Um, okay. Whereas with Biden, in a, in a, first of all, have you ever seen a more crowded primary and a more disjointed primary and a more fraught primary than this one mm -hmm. with so many people and so few debates where there was any clarity about anything. Mm -hmm. So it was difficult for people to break through. It was, it's a fear election. I really believe that. People are deathly afraid of a second term. And, you know, most normal people out there are not hanging on every political twist and turn. And so they don't necessarily, you know, have these, like, uber-detailed analyses. They know what 
works for them in that moment. And I do think that a lot of the voting for Joe Biden, and you could see it in the reports that people were deciding on the voting line, were about, like, okay, those people voted for him, so I'm going with him because it seems like he's electable. And, mm-hmm. you know, who's electable is who you vote for, right. but people are always trying to play this mental jujitsu about, is so-and-so going to vote for that mm-hmm. person? Yeah, which uh, is something that Nate Silver had pointed out uh, over at 538. He was citing those polls um, as as self-fulfilling prophecies that women might prefer uh, Elizabeth Warren, but they don't think she can win or they don't think other people will vote for her, so they'll vote for someone else. He said there's a lot of women who might not vote for a woman because they're worried that other voters won't vote for her, but if everyone just voted for who they actually wanted to be president, the woman would win, he argued. Right, right. So and yeah. I, I found an, a similar thing as well. Uh, David Atkins, who is a California Democratic Party uh, yeah. organizer in the state, he said that uh, Democratic voters have psyched themselves out of picking the best nominee because they were second guessing what guys at a Wisconsin diner would do. Right. And exactly. I think that in addition to that, that electability narrative was really heavily pressed by the corporate media. And I think that is Absolutely. something that also has to be contended with, because from the very beginning, they were trying to herd everybody into what apparently seemed to be what the corporate media felt was an electability argument that then did seem to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. Well, if you if you are the kind of voter who doesn't have, you know, immense amounts of time in your personal life because you're working, take care of kids, take care of family, and what you're hearing on TV day after day is electability, electability, and, you know, quite frankly, early on, again, because I'm obsessive about this, <laughs> Joe Biden was considered the most electable, and it does become a self-fulfilling prophecy, and I think that's not unintentional. I also think it's not unintentional because we know from Wall Street itself, from Wall Street corporate, you know, executives themselves, from memos they wrote, that they were most afraid of Elizabeth Warren because she is so effective at what she does. Mm. And she's got such moral clarity about how, you know, money is ruining our democracy. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, very similar positions in many cases to Bernie Sanders, but it seems like Wall Street is more afraid of Elizabeth Warren yes. because she actually is uh, much more, has a record of sort of being more effective at uh, uh, making those changes she's talking about. She had this to say on her uh on her, uh, on, her, on her driveway, I guess, on Thursday as she was uh, uh, speaking to the press about uh, dropping out. You know, I was told at the beginning of this whole undertaking that there are two lanes, a progressive lane that Bernie Sanders is the incumbent for and a moderate lane that Joe Biden is the incumbent for, and there's no room for anyone else in this. I thought that wasn't right, but evidently I was wrong. Senator, 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 what do you think? So, uh, my question, Jody Jacobson, uh, was she wrong? This sort of, uh, you know, refers back to what Desi was talking about, about the the media narrative. If there's a media narrative here, it's that, you know, there's two lanes. You can be more progressive or moderate. Or was she just seeing as occupying that progressive lane, which was already taken up by Sanders, uh, who had the benefit of running in 2016? So there was just no room for Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, I think that, um, it's true that the media absolutely contributed to that, this idea of lanes. Um, 
for things that we have very little clear definition of. I mean, I have no idea what a moderate is. A moderate what? A moderate, like, <laughs> let's let right. climate change destroy half right. the Earth yeah. and not the other half? I mean, I don't understand the term. I think it's a vague, fake term. Mm-hmm. But It's that shorthand said, that doesn't really define anything, but it does seem it to be useful shorthand. Yeah. Exactly. But, but, you know, on the other hand, and I'm going to put blame where it lies, the Sanders campaign did as much as it could to vilify her, and there was a lot of gaslighting going on. So even today, you have people in the Sanders you know, camp, uh, prominent supporters of Sanders, talking about how Elizabeth Warren owes people an apology because she broke their trust. And, you know, I think th- it's the most insane thing I've ever seen. Bro- broke their trust on what? Well, that would be my question. Okay. Well, there's this narrative that's going out that it's like somehow selfish if she does not uh, immediately turn over her endorsement yeah. to whoever the person is that they are supporting. That you're being selfish because you're going to let Trump win and it's all your fault. You woman, right. get out of the way. Well, you know what? Let, right. me, let me toss this into the mix then because uh, I, I sort of wanted to wrap on this anyway and I want to get your thoughts. Uh, she has not yet endorsed either Bernie Sanders or uh, Joe Biden. Um, in one sense... To me, that seems like a smart idea because she would then be open to being named uh, vice president by either of them, uh, which I believe you know would be a game changer for Democrats, frankly, if yeah. she was named as a vice president in either case. Um, and if you're a Bernie Sanders supporter and if you actually care about the progressive ideas that uh, uh, Bernie Sanders cares about, I would think you would be delighted to have uh, an Elizabeth Warren as the vice president, uh, vice presidential nominee on the ticket if it's not uh, Bernie Sanders or even if it is. Yeah, you'd think, but. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, if you care about progressive policies, that would be a fantastic path for those policies, whether it's uh, Sanders or Biden who ends up winning the nomination. am, Am I wrong about that? No, you're you're not at all wrong. But on one hand, Biden doesn't support those policies, mm-hmm. um, and they are antithetical to who he is because right. he is funded by a lot of banks and corporations and so forth. And then, um, you know, on the other hand, I think if she were Sanders' vice president, mm-hmm. I have deep concerns myself just from what I've seen from the campaign of the kind of president he would be and whether or not he could have his act together and whether or not his administration would be full of people who are not really qualified for the job and I don't know whether she wants to go into that or not. I mean, that's her call, obviously. Oh, yeah, obviously. But I think the point being that, you know, that that mo- that Warren would be a moderating influence on either one of them for the good, I think, would be the idea that Brad's trying to say here, that having her as part of Biden's uh, team or having her as part of Bernie's team would then solve the problems that come with either one of mm. those candidates. But I guess that's what, not what we're going to find out right now. Right, right. Well, well uh, yeah, no, go ahead. Because I want to turn. No, I was going to say. Yeah. It's going to an invitation has to be extended. True. <laughs> well, let me turn this then on you, uh, Jody. When you say that you're not sure that uh, Biden would want an Elizabeth Warren, and that that could be he may need an Elizabeth Warren. That might be a, a, a separate issue down the road. But when it comes to um, 
how he would, how she would, I'm sorry, uh, you know, quickly boost Sanders, who would also be much closer to her ideology if she did give him an endorsement. You know, wouldn't that be better for uh, the progressive policies that you believe in if she came out right now and said, yes, I support uh, I support Bernie. And that's whether she's named as uh, his uh, Veep choice or not. Um, Potentially, um, I think potentially. But I, I, I think that there's also the consideration that there's a real possibility Bernie will lose. And, you know, because what we've seen from the campaign so far is that everything they've claimed to have rested their theory of change on has proven not to be true. And so, and I don't see in that campaign, speaking extremely frankly, a very close adherence to data or learning. And so I worry that maybe for her part, endorsing Mm. him and then having him lose also has effect on the progressive agenda. Hmm. Well, that's a good point as well. Uh, Jody Jacobson, uh, as as I let you go here, uh, am I hearing in your voice that as a Warren superfan, self-identified Warren superfan, you're now leaning more towards Biden than uh, Sanders? I am not going to say who I'm leaning towards because I don't know, frankly, okay. honestly. Fair. I really don't know. I'm right. I'm Right now, I'm in a state of mourning, (laughs) Uh, to be very frank with you. So, yeah. Okay. Well, um, my uh, sympathies for your loss today, Jody, and and I do mean that uh, because I think Actually, the entire country has uh, has lost out uh, on what Warren had to offer, and that's why I'm sort of looking for her path towards a uh, vice presidential nod somewhere yeah. or another. Uh, Jody Jacobson, independent writer, editor, consultant, former editor-in-chief of Rewire.News. You can find her and her formerly Warren superfan Twitter feed at J.L. Jacobson on the Twitters. Jody, great talking to you as always. Look Thank forward to doing so it again much. soon. You bet. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you generous listeners who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us on your public airwaves. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And you'll find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. That is it. Until we meet again next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.